turn your Bible to the passage that you just heard read, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you're doing so, let me ask a question that certainly popped into my head when I started working through this passage in detail this past week. And the question is simply this, how valuable is eternal life? Just think about that. How valuable is it? How valuable is it compared with everything else that you would place value on? Now, perhaps while you're pondering that question, or maybe your initial response to that question, let me ask a follow-up. If you're anything like me, the follow-up is slightly more convicting because it's a little bit more pointed. (laughs) The follow-up question is, uh, does your lifestyle, your choices reflect the answer you gave to the first question and how valuable eternal life is. You see, it's, it's easy to know the right answer to that question. Uh, even if you're, you don't have much of a church background, it probably wouldn't surprise you to come into a church and hear a pastor get up and say, eternal life is really important. I mean, that's the kind of thing you expect to hear in church, right? And especially if you're like many of us, you've been around church and the Bible for a long time, you sort of know the right answer to that question. Eternal life is really the most valuable thing there is. Now, the real question, though, comes in, okay, that's what I believe, That's what I know, is that what my life demonstrates? And I I said a minute ago, that's a little bit more of a a convicting question for me personally, because I think if I'm honest, the honest answer to that second question varies in, in my life. Sometimes my life reflects how much I see the value of eternal life. Other times, maybe not so much. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, told a very short um, but quite punchy parallel. Uh, parable, excuse me. He said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and, and covered it up so nobody else would find it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That's it. That's the parable. The man sells everything. I mean, that means like he's got, he's got nothing left to his name except this, this field that he bought, this piece of dirt. But of course, it's not just a piece of dirt. It's got this unbelievable like treasure chest. I always imagined as a kid, this was like some pirate's treasure, you know, just full of gold and jewels. I mean, he's, he's divested himself of everything. He dumps his car. He dumps his house. I'm elaborating a little bit for 21st century audience. Um, he, he liquidates his investment portfolio. He empties out his vacation savings account. He's done with it all. But notice, too, his response. Jesus said, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. This is not the picture of somebody who's doing this out of, like, obligation or duty. Like, he's happy to get rid of all of that good stuff. What in the world is going on here? The guy's either crazy or he's really found some treasure, right? Which is, of course, the point of the parable. Because if he loses everything else but gains this one treasure, he still comes out ahead. That's the point Jesus is making. That's some treasure. Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God. It's eternal life. We're in the final sermon in this book of 1 Timothy, 
and we're going to wrap this up this morning, the second half of chapter 6, which I mentioned last week. This is really part two of the sermon we started last week, the first half of chapter 6. It's all one sort of lengthy conclusion to this book. This whole chapter is about exhorting Christians to spend ourselves pursuing the greatest possible gain, which is experiencing God. Now, part one last week, uh, the first half of the chapter we saw, was kind of focused on warning us off of the dangers that, that come with the desire to get rich in this life. Um, less because it's wrong to do so and more because it's dangerous to the Christian. It takes our eyes, material wealth takes our eyes off the real prize. That was sort of the point of last week. Well, today is going to pick up that same thought and, and look at the more positive side of that question. What does it look like to put our eyes squarely on the prize and to live a life that embraces it and reaches for it and experiences all of God that we can? That's what this morning's passage is all about. There are really three simple points in this uh, half of this chapter we're going to read three points this morning first of all the exhortation in verses 11 14 that that timothy be a person who runs to win he he fights the fight in order to win it be in it to win it that's the first point the second point is a look at the matchless worth of god in this glorious uh praise song right in the middle of the passage and then the last third and final point in verses 17 to 19 are some very practical implications what do i do as a christian if i want to act on those first two principles. So let's dive into the text that we have this morning. Starting right away in chapter uh, 6, verse 11. In verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul shares with Timothy um, several different exhortations. There's Actually, if you go through these verses, you count five specific commands, things that Timothy is told to do, and they really all amount to the same thing. In verse 11, he says, flee these things, all the ungodliness that he described in the passage we saw last week, and then he immediately turns around the second command, um, pursue godliness, and he gives some descriptions of the kind of lifestyle in verse 11 that Timothy is to pursue. Uh, So flee this and pursue that. Thirdly, he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Fourthly, in verse 12, he says, lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then lastly, down in verse 14, he says, keep the commandment unstained for the world. So flee this, pursue that, fight the good fight, lay hold of the treasure, pursue the commandment. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Timothy, run to win. Like run to win. Be the kind of Christian who is living his or her life on purpose, with the goal of attaining the greatest treasure that could be offered. A couple of significant aspects to what he means here in some of the variation of words he uses. First of all, that that statement in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, that, that kind of language is very common in the New Testament, and it automatically tells us something about what it means to live a life this way. There's, there's a couple of things that we get from this. First of all, the idea that, that in the best cases, the Christian life is a fight. Um, it's a battle. It's a battle every single day. The language that he's using here would have been pretty common in the first century to describe athletic contests, you know, distance races uh, or boxing matches. They did a lot of that, you know, boxing sort of fighting type stuff in these controlled environments. And that's the language he uses. He's like, you're, you're in a fight. There's a good fight. It's the fight for your faith. So stay at it. Uh, keep your eye on the ball and don't get distracted by other lesser things that are constantly vying for our attention, like he just talked about the desire to get rich in the previous few verses before that. This tells us there's always a battle in this life to stay focused, to stay focused. 
which is actually, I think, really helpful. I mean, you can sort of look at it as good news, bad news, if you want. Um, the bad news is, if I could put it that way, uh, this is apparently the, the, the determination to stay focused and, and pursuing Jesus is not something the Bible ever expects in this life a Christian will just figure out, right? I've got that one whipped. Finally figured it out. Boxes checked. I can now move on to something else. I no longer have reached a point of maturity in my Christian life where I no longer have to struggle to really strive hard for Jesus. That never happens. Not according to scripture. It's interesting that if you were to render that literally, it actually says keep on fighting the good fight of faith. It's literally how that reads. Keep on fighting. And he assumes Timothy's already in the fight, but he says keep on going. It's this ongoing thing. And so we can look at that maybe as bad news and say like, I guess this is not the kind of thing I'll ever totally figure out. But there's a good news to that as well. The good news is that this is a battle that's always going to be here, meaning I don't need to fight my entire lifetime's battle right now. I just need to fight the battle today. As a Christian, what does it look like today to keep my focus on God? You know, sometimes it means, like, stay in the fight. Sometimes it means the last round went to materialism. Like, I lost. I've been, I've been spending my time too focused on money. Rather than getting all caught up in the guilt or the shame of that, he says, get up off the mat and fight the next round. This is a long bout. Even if the last round went to ungodliness, stay in the fight. Satan can use guilt to immobilize us, but we're told to keep on fighting, keep on running get up off the mat and stay at it. Another thing we learn from this comes from the next command, to lay hold of eternal life. This is so important. This is really the heart of this whole first point. The Apostle Paul tells him in verse 12, Timothy, lay hold of or take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is going on here? What's he talking about? The interesting thing is he kind of tells Timothy here to grab hold of something that he already has. Did you notice that in the language? It's kind of a weird tension in, in the way the Bible talks, and this is not the only passage where the Bible says this. I'll show you another one here in just a second. Take hold of the eternal life that you already have. In other words, this fight that Timothy is supposed to be in to maintain perspective on Jesus is not a fight to gain salvation. He's not fighting to be a good enough person to get into heaven or a good enough person to get God to like him. He already has that. And yet, and yet, the Bible tells him, but keep fighting for it. Fight to lay hold of it, not because you don't already possess it, but precisely because you do it's like the grapefruit my son and I fought over at the dinner table last night. Like, who's going to get to eat the grapefruit, right? And, sorry, I just had to throw that in there. He won the fight, so we're good. Um, I love eating grapefruits. You slice them, you eat, and it's like, you know, you eat all the stuff, and then there's all that good juice in, right? And you're squeezing it into the spoon. Every, how much more can I squeeze? I want to squeeze every bit of good juice out of that thing that I can. I've already got it, but I'm yearning for more. That's sort of the picture here. Now, what that means is that he already knows that Timothy has a relationship with Jesus and that he's eternally saved. And he knows this because in his language, I know you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is that talking about? 
It's interesting here, he says that Timothy made the good confession, and whatever he means by that, what's really interesting to notice is in the very next verse, he says Jesus made the same good confession, verse 14. Keep the commandment unstained from the world. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, And then he goes on, but let's stop there and think about that for a second. He says, Timothy, you made the good confession. So did Jesus when he was standing before Pilate. So what's the good confession? What is he talking about here? Well, if you go back and read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them record the scene when Jesus, the day he was crucified, was whipped and beaten and accused before the religious leaders and eventually shipped off to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, where the Jewish people were looking for authority to execute him on the cross. And so Pilate is interrogating him and saying like, well, what have you done wrong? And they're accusing you of being king of the Jews. And there's actually only one question that Pilate asked Jesus that Jesus answered. There's only one thing that Jesus confessed before Pontius Pilate. Pilate at one point asked him, are you the king of the Jews? It was the only question Jesus responded to, and his response was, you said so yourself. That's it. That's the good confession. In other words, yes. I am the king of the Jews. But here's the thing to understand about that. Biblically, that meant much more than he was just the rightful uh, political ruler of one particular people group. It meant that he was the Bible's long-promised Messiah. He was the one who would sit on the throne of David, the throne of Israel, to be the king of the Jews. In the biblical context... That meant that that God would one day send a unique prophet, priest, king. He would speak for God as a prophet. He would atone for the sins of the whole world as the priest, and he would be the king who would sit on the universe's throne. And so when Jesus says, I am the king of the Jews, he's saying, I'm that king. Not just for Jewish people, but for everybody. I am the prophet, priest, king. I'm the savior and the king of the universe. That was the confession that Jesus made before Pilate. And so when the apostle Paul says, Timothy, you made that same confession too in the presence of witnesses, he's clearly talking about a public proclamation that Timothy made in the presence of other people when he basically said, I'm a Christian. (laughs) I recognize Jesus as the universe's prophet, priest, king, and frankly, I recognize him as my own personal savior, king, and I submit my life to him and bank my salvation on him probably happened at his baptism, which would have been a public event because that's what baptisms are. They are uh, public events before a church family where a person publicly confesses Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so the important thing to understand here is he's already confident Timothy has salvation because he was probably present. He's talking as if he was actually there at Timothy's baptism. I heard you make that confession. And so you already have eternal life. Grab onto it. The reason this is so important to understand is because without it, we won't quite get that tension between grab on to something you already have. We'll either assume that we don't need to grab onto it or we'll wrongly assume we already have it. Put it this way. In response to Jesus' identity as Messiah, the Bible generally talks about three different kinds of people. Uh, You might call them the fooled, the foolish, and the wise. Those are my terms. Um, The fooled are people who assume they're Christians because they think positively about God. Um, 
Maybe because they work hard to be good religious people. Maybe they pray prayers. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they've always believed in Jesus, whatever that means to them. And so they assume that they're Christians. But they've never actually experienced what in older times people used to call conversion, where I move from death to life and I make this good confession that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. They've never explicitly admitted personal sin and guilt before God, repented of it, and placed their trust in Jesus to cleanse them from sin and give them eternal life. That's what he's talking about that Timothy did. You did that publicly in front of your whole church. That's why I'm confident you're saved. Many places the Bible talks about this. Just one example, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says that many people will be surprised one day. That's why I I use this word, the fooled. Many people, Jesus says, will be surprised on the final day of judgment because they will have done all these religious things and they will have done all these acts of service to God and they'll get there on judgment day and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they'll be like, whoa, Jesus, you got the wrong person. Didn't I do all these things? I always believed in you. I always went to church. He's like, I never knew you. And they'll be shocked. He tells us that as a warning. We can be fooled. He doesn't want anybody to be fooled. He wants those of us who want to follow him to be clear about what it means to follow him. And it starts by making this good confession in the presence of other people before God. You are my savior, king. Don't be among the fooled. The second group of people the Bible talks about is the foolish. The foolish. These are people who confess their sins and acknowledge Jesus as savior. So they've done that. They've prayed the prayer, we sometimes say in our churchy language. (laughs) And so, great, um, I'm, I'm saved, I believe I'm going to heaven, but it doesn't really go much beyond that. At that point, they sort of take their belief in Jesus and kind of put it up on a shelf somewhere in a closet of their life and then get on living their lives. And there's not really a whole lot of difference before and after. Some have referred to this as kind of fire insurance faith, you know, it's kind of a hell insurance type of faith. Um, I'm going to die someday, and I don't want to go to hell, and, and when I die that day, I'll be able to pull that shoebox down off the shelf in my closet and say, hey, I got my ticket to heaven punched, so I'm good, but that's about all it's good for. Until then, it doesn't really have any impact on my regular life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says that everybody who is in Christ, a Christian, is a new creation. Like, Becoming a Christian, God moves in and it actually starts to change your life. It can't have no effect. It's just not the way it works. First uh, John chapter 4 makes that even more clear. It says that salvation means that the life of God is now operating in the life of a Christian. And that's going to work itself out in visible changes, changes in our loves and our affections, our priorities that ultimately result in changes in our actions. Oh, of course, Christians still sin. Sadly, too often, we will be far from perfect. But the the reality of making the good confession means that it will change our lives here and now. So there's the fool, the foolish. Lastly, there's the wise. These are people who embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior King. They understand that real life is in God, and God is in my life right now. And so I do everything I can to start experiencing and living out the reality of the new life that God put in me right now and figuring out what that means as best I can. This is what Paul talks about when he uses similar language in the book of Philippians, just a couple uh, books prior to this. Let me just read you one brief passage from Philippians chapter 3. He says, 
uh, referring to the resurrection from the dead, my eternal life that I will receive in heaven someday, he says, I don't consider that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. There's that language again. I, I, he's like, I, I'm, if you just read that at face value, you might think that Paul's questioning whether he's gonna go to heaven when he's dead, he, when he dies. He's not really sure, right? But actually, that's not what he's saying at all. He knows he belongs to Jesus Christ, but he says, I press on hard to own it, to grasp onto it. He actually clarifies that more as the passage goes on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that tension again? I already belong to Jesus, and so I'm reaching to experience more of what it means to belong to Jesus. I don't consider I've made it my own yet. I'm not there. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, this is how I live my life. Now in Timothy, he's instructing Timothy to do the same thing. He concludes in verse 16, only let us hold true or hold fast to what we have already attained. Did you see the language? As a Christian, I can know because of Jesus, not me, that I am saved. But the Christian life becomes a fight to squeeze every bit of reality out of that salvation experientially as I can right now. That's what Timothy is being called to. Think of it this way. <clears throat> One Christmas Eve, I sat next to a really cute girl in the living room of her parents and asked her to marry me. Um, thank God she said yes. <laughs> And uh, we set a wedding date for August. So we embarked on about an eight-month, maybe eight-and-a-half-month engagement period. Now, it was an interesting time because I had just finished my undergraduate college degree. Uh, Amy was in, still in school. She'd finished her undergrad degree, but she was going to school for teaching credentials. So she was very, very busy with an academic load. I was trying to work kind of part-time odd jobs to just save up a little money because we were going to get married and move to Portland, which we did, and I was going to go to graduate school, and on and on it went. Um, so like, there's all of this planning for this wonderful life we're going to have together. And every night, um, like a typical young and love engaged couple... I would leave whatever work I was doing when it was done, and I would go over to her house and just like hang out with her all night long. Now, she was so busy, most of the time we couldn't even really go do, it's like we're going out to dinner or going to see movies or doing lots of fun stuff. It was like she's got homework, you know? And I'm like, okay, let's do homework. I think I earned an honorary teaching credential that year. <laughs> By the way, just for the record, the state of California disagreed, but... Um, like, we would, you know, we would just study together. That's what you got to do. I don't care what we got to do as long as I'm with you because we're in love, right? And so, of course, we would talk about it's going to be great someday when, you know, I mean, at some point every night, it was like, well, okay, we'd have to say goodbye, and I would leave. You know, it's like, well, someday we're not going to say goodbye. We'll just say goodnight. Someday it's going to be cool. We're going to move in together. We're going to start a family together. We've got dreams. We've got things we want to do together. Like, we're looking forward to this day when the marriage will take place and this relationship will be fully consummated and we're not there yet. But how crazy would it be? How crazy would it be if I said, I'm really in love with this cute girl. We're engaged. Eight months from now, it's going to be awesome. But until then, I got stuff to do. So I never go over there, never call, never talk to her. She's busy. I'm busy. Like, it's going to be awesome someday, but right now, man, I got stuff to do. You'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> No, we weren't married yet, but we were still like trying to squeeze every bit of goodness out of this relationship that we possibly could. It's an imperfect analogy, but I think that's a picture of what God is saying. Yes, one day we will be with him in heaven. It'll be perfect. But until then, we reach and strive to experience as much of him as possible. And he is worth it. That leads to our next point. 
He is worth spending that time with because he is the most glorious person and the most exciting and fulfilling relationship you could ever be involved in. Verses 15 and 16 are this magnificent doxology, we call it. That's a a hymn of praise, a poem of praise to God put right in the middle of this discussion of how to strive to be with God. And it's put there because the whole point of this passage is keep your eyes on the prize. Well, here's a picture of the prize. Here's a glorious picture of the prize. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, will display at the proper time. This is now referring to the character and the nature of God. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who alone has immortality. He's the source of life, who dwells in an approachable light. He is high, he is brilliant, he is glorious, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's how magnificent and holy he is. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You can just hear the Apostle Paul as he's writing this, and it's like he just can't stop gushing in his praise for the awesome magnificence of God. It's captivated his heart. That's what he wants for Timothy what God wants for you. That's what he wants for me. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is he never got over the goodness of God or the glory of God. Here he is late in his life writing this letter. He's almost done. His race is almost over, and he's still talking as if he just met God yesterday. He's, he's every bit in love with God, maybe even more so than the first day when God saved him. What he's saying is that this captivating vision of God's glory is the center of the Christian life. When we have that firmly fixed in our minds and in our hearts, that's what propels us on to experience as much of that as we can. What he's saying is that Jesus is better than golf. That's what he's saying. He's better. He's more satisfying. He's better than a new living room set. He's better than sex, and he's better than an RV. That's what God is. God is better than coffee and wine. A little bit of personal conviction. I like them both. (laughs) God is better than attention from others and pats on the back and attaboys. God is better than getting mentioned on Facebook. He's better than having a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife in a happy marriage. He's better than a promotion, a championship, or straight A's. He's better than all of that. He's better than a happy family around the dinner table at Thanksgiving. He's better than a luxurious house in the right neighborhood, a new car with the backup camera and those cool little radar thingies that tell you when somebody's in your blind spot. And he's better than a week's worth of pina coladas by the turquoise sea under the palm trees. Jesus is better. Now, all of those things are good. I like a lot of the things I just put on that list. I like some of them a lot but Jesus is better. It is an unchanging fact that none of that will satisfy. Only God can satisfy. He alone has immortality. He is the source of life. It's an unchanging fact, and you and I were designed by God to see it, recognize the truth of it, and respond to it with our whole hearts and our lives, pursuing him as the greatest treasure that there is because we were designed by God as worshipers. Or as we like to say here at Harvest, we were designed to glorify God by seeing his infinite worth as ultimately beautiful. His worth is infinite, and we were made to see it as more valuable than all that other stuff and to chase it as more valuable than all that other stuff but that's hard. 
But that's hard because we're engaged in a battle. And it's a battle for our affections. C.S. Lewis was so insightful on this about 80 years ago. Uh, He wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory. The first paragraph alone is worth the price of admission. You should Google it, read it. You'll have to think about it. (laughs) It's pretty dense. So good. I'll paraphrase him. He really hits a nail on the head when he says that the biggest problem, according to God, is, is that our desires are not too strong. It's not like we love other stuff more than God, and so our desires are so strong they pull us away from God. He actually says it's the opposite. Our desires are too weak. They're too weak. You really hit the nail on the head there. Our desires are so weak that we see something good like golf or sex or a vacation and we go, ooh, that's worth giving my life for. He's like, no, it's not. And then in comparison, God becomes less valuable to us. We're trying to get joy, he says, out of things like achievement and relationships and money and alcohol, which can never ultimately satisfy. And all the while, God is offering us infinite joy. He concludes that paragraph with this just devastating, simple statement. We are far too easily pleased. I think he's right. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to strive for the greatest pleasure one can find, to be satisfied in God himself. So how do we do that? <laughs> how do we do that? I say, okay, that's... I, I want to I wanna squeeze that grapefruit. <laughs> I want to get as much out of my relationship with God right here and now as possible. How do I do that? Well, honestly, there are hundreds of ways to do that. We've covered a number of them already throughout this study of 1 Timothy. I won't take the effort to recap all of them, but I will point out that, that actually answering that question in one specific area is where this passage ends. How do we see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful leads to the third and final point in this passage. First of all, we're in a fight to pursue God. Secondly, God is most glorious and worth pursuing. So lastly, how do we do it? How do we do it? He turns his attention in these final few verses, verses 17 to 19, to the subject of our money. The same subject he started chapter six with, the subject of our money. And it's kind of interesting because back at the beginning of chapter six and last week's passage, we sort of saw that, that the desire to be rich is kind of a danger for Christians because it can pull our eyes off of God and onto lesser stuff, and that's all true, but this week he's going to give us the more positive side to that. He's going to tell us that money can, well used, actually be a tool to help shape our perspective correctly. It can be a danger that pulls us away from God, but used rightly, it can actually be a tool that pulls us closer to God. Here's where he covers that in verses 17 to 19. Am I behind? There we go. Verse 17. Right after that beautiful doxology of God's praise, he says, so, as for the rich in this present age, instruct them, okay, stop right there. Pause. We got time out. <laughs> Grind gears, slam the brakes. Stop. My fear is, as I started reading verse 17, 90% of you just tuned me out. Because it's addressed to the rich. Right? Which clearly isn't me. <laughs> clearly not most of us. I mean, we all know who rich people are, right? Somebody else. People that have more zeros after their, you know, annual income than I do after mine. People who have nicer cars and take nicer vacations and get to do nicer things. They're probably the rich, but the rich isn't me. Who is the rich in this present world? If you remember verse 8 from last week, it may give us a clue. 
We saw this last Sunday. He says, but if we have food, same chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, verse 9, fall into temptation. You see the contrast there? We dealt with the contentment thing last week. All I want to talk about today is just like, what does he mean when he talks about rich? He seems to think that everybody needs a certain amount of money in order to buy food and clothing, and, and, and that's sort of a metaphor for getting your basic needs met. That, that's obvious. Everybody needs that. So the rich person is the person who has more than that. There's those who have food and clothing, and then there's those who desire to get rich. If I have more than I need to basically survive, I'm probably rich, according to this definition, which is a little different than how we normally think. Because rich people have certain kinds of cars and a certain kind of lifestyle in our culture. But I think the Bible is trying to broaden our perspective out a little bit here. If you compare us right now in probably the wealthiest society per capita in the history of the human race, I don't think that's an overstatement, if you compare us to the vast majority of the human beings alive on this planet today, we are almost absurdly rich in what we have and have access to. I'm not trying to minimize economic hardship or poverty. It exists in our country, and some of us are in economically tough times. I'm not trying to minimize that either. Those, those problems are real. I'm simply saying, overall, what is our definition of rich? And if you broaden it out even more and compare us to the um, many, many billions of human beings who have lived throughout human history were almost grotesquely wealthy in the things that we have and have access to. So just a little bit of perspective when he is addressing the rich. He's probably talking to just about all of us. Those who have more than they need to just minimally survive. He says, charge them. We get three instructions here, three kind of practical takeaways to put this into practice. Charge them not to be haughty, charge them to put their hope in God, and charge them to be generous and ready to share. Let's just look at each one of these briefly. First of all, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty, that is, uh, arrogant. The idea here is the mindset that, that sort of takes responsibility for what I do have. Like, I, I believe my wealth and my income is the result of my hard work, my skill, my smart choices, and, and the decisions that I have made. That's why I have this wealth. Uh, my net worth, whether I think it's large or small, the point is it reflects me. Um, my net worth reflects my personal worth. This is an attitude that the Bible has dealt with head on numerous times. It's like King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of the uh, Babylonian Empire, which at the time was the most dominant world empire in the known world. Daniel chapter 4, he looks out on his kingdom and he claimed credit for it in his heart. Bible says he, he, call, look, he looked out at his massive, glorious city and he called it a monument to his own wisdom and effectiveness as a ruler. This is all about me and God struck him insane to teach him humility. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God actually, many generations earlier, gave the exact same warning to his own people. God is speaking through Moses to the ancient Israelites and they're about to go into the promised land. I mean, they're, they're nobodies on, on the world scale. They, they've been slaves for generations. They've been nomads for the past generation wandering in the desert. They've got uh, very few possessions. They've got no homeland. They're just kind of nobodies and they're about to go into this promised land where they're going to have all these wonderful cities and be able to plant crops and raise livestock and get wealthy according to the standards of their world at the time. And God gives them this warning, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 to 18. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see, that's the mindset. The understanding that I have nothing but what God in his gracious mercy has given me. It's possible to develop that mindset no matter what your net worth is, but it takes work. It takes work because the sinfully natural tendency of the human heart is to say, this was my decisions, this was my hard work. I'm the one who went to graduate school. I'm the one who passed the interview. I'm the one who made the smart investment choice. I'm the one who has gotten me this wealth. Income in excess of, we, of what we need pulls on our thinking and can make us naturally take credit for what we have. And so we ground our identity and our sense of self-worth in who we are. You know, we, we buy prestige houses. We buy prestige cars because we want to be seen driving them because it, it advertises I'm a success, Right? I'm a success. That's how the thinking functions in our culture. If we're Christians with more money than we need to survive, the Bible warns us, don't be arrogant and haughty, but understand that God has given us. Everything we have to enjoy comes from God. And it's not inherently sinful to enjoy it. We've got to understand, though, it, it comes from God. Secondly, uh, speaking of what has come from God, the positive side of that is don't be arrogant, but now secondly, set your hope on God, not money. The end of verse 17 don't uh, instruct them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love how Proverbs chapter 23 puts it, verses four and five. Do not toil to acquire wealth, the Bible says. Don't, don't sweat too much just to get more stuff than what you need. Be discerning enough to desist. I love that. Four, when your eyes light upon it, that is wealth, suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's the Bible's wisdom. It's what First Timothy is saying. Don't uh, instruct them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's like here today, gone tomorrow. And we know that. And so then the natural tendency is to say, well, I have enough, but it could be gone at any moment. And so the answer to that is I need more. So the more money I have, the less likely that all of it will sprout wings at one time and I might have more. And it just becomes this incredible toil to get more so that we have enough security. It's the endless treadmill of wealth pulling on us. The Bible says, here's the positive side of that. We don't set our hope on that because we understand it's uncertain. I, I love the phrase, be wise, uh, be discerning enough to desist. It's telling Christians like, Know when it's time to stop exerting yourself to pile up more cash and start spending your life on more productive and eternal things. Where exactly is that line? I don't know. Because I can't just pinpoint one spot for it, which is good because we would just make a legalistic rule out of it if the Bible did pinpoint a spot. What the Bible tells us is be discerning, be wise, understand, is my heart putting too much hope in this security? That's a constant part of the constant fight that I'm reevaluating with God. Lastly, don't be arrogant. Um, set our hope on God, not money, who's the one that gives us everything to enjoy. And lastly, give generously. Maybe most practically, I'll give generously. Verse 18, they are to do good. His actions. Case we need a little more clarification. He says, instruct them to be rich in good works, not just in net worth, but actually be known to be rich in good works. And lest we want to substitute volunteer time for our money, he's even more clear to be generous and ready to share. 
instruct people who have more than they need to be liberal in how they give it to one's church, to other ministries and missionaries, to people in need around us to see the kingdom of God advance for the love of people and the love of his name. Because real security for the future comes with a rich entrance into heaven, a hearty, well-done, good and faithful servant from God himself. That's the best future you could ever have. Money in this life is actually one tool, the Bible says, that we can employ to secure such a future. This is not buying your salvation. Again, the assumption, back to the beginning, the assumption is this is already, we're talking about Christians that have already confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. Our salvation is guaranteed, but money now becomes a tool by which we can squeeze out the goodness of our future security. It's interesting where he, how he explains that in verse 19. He says, in this way they will store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Take hold of life. Where have we heard that phrase before? It's back up in verse 12 where we started. Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Rich people, give generously because that's an example of what it means to take hold of eternal life, not temporal life. That can fly away. Of course, in writing this, the Apostle Paul's not making it up. He's quoting Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Sprouts wings, it's shaky. But, Jesus says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Yearn for a greater and a more lasting game where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. And it's absolutely certain. How do I do that? Giving generously, 1 Timothy says, is an example of what it means to take hold of that which is truly life. This isn't an absolute prohibition against wise saving, against future needs. It's guidance for how to think about when is some saving enough and, and when does it become too much? And, and what is my heart hoping in? How much I have saved? Or am I really looking forward to that eternity with God? When in, doubt, when in doubt about how much giving is enough, it's probably worth just going ahead and trying to give a little more and see how it works out. That's not the Bible, that's just me. Take it for what it's worth. But if I'm a Christian and I'm wondering, should I give more? And I'm not sure, and I can sort of spend all of my time kind of holding my money and waiting for God to tell me to give more, I think he just did. So go ahead and give a little more and see how it works out. <laughs> if it blows up in your face, maybe you pull back and save more. I don't know, but this is a call to action, right? This is a call to action. Bottom line, Christians who make more than what is minimally needed to live should spend some, save enough, and give generously. Okay, what is some? What is enough? And what is generous? I don't know. I can't tell you. And it's probably good I can't because we would just make it a legalistic standard. What we're rather given here is not a legalistic standard. What we're given is a blueprint of what it looks like when a heart is captivated by the glory of God. Not arrogant, but understanding everything we have is his. Believing that our best hope for a joyous and secure future is in eternity rather than amassing wealth now. And once our heart is so captivated with the glory of God that we can't wait to squeeze every ounce of joy out of our relationship with him that we can, our hearts are finally in a great place to say, so am I giving enough or not? When your heart is there, pray that one out with God and I'm real confident you'll make a good choice. 
and let the giving of the money lead the heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's a danger that can pull us away from God. It's also a positive tool that can pull us closer toward him. This whole book of 1 Timothy has taught us that what we believe as a church, the gospel, that's, that's Timothy's deposit in verse 20. He sums up, it just says, Timothy, guard the deposit. Don't, don't give in to this babble. People have walked away from the faith. Just, he sums up the whole book in a verse. Brother, live and preach the gospel of Jesus. Be captivated by it and instruct people in your church to do the same. The purpose statement of this book was back in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you, church, so you will know how one ought to behave in the church, which is a pillar, a foundation for the truth. We as a church are to uphold Jesus and the glories of the gospel in how we behave and live, which flows out of what we believe. And if we believe God is most glorious, then we pursue him as most valuable. And that even affects the way that we save and the way that we give. We have an opportunity right now to wrap up this series with the act of worship known as communion. So I want to ask the worship team to go ahead and come forward and the ushers are going to get ready to serve the communion elements to us. Um, it's coincidental that we're doing communion this Sunday. Like, I didn't plan it this way, but I'm enough of a Calvinist that every time I say coincidental, I feel like I should wink <laughs> because God's in control of these kinds of things. The opportunity to celebrate communion as a response to this book is beautiful because it gives us the opportunity as a church to say, you know what? We're coming together as the church of Jesus Christ here at Harvest to announce the worth of God in the way that he has declared for us. The other key ordinance of the church, we referred to baptism earlier in our services, this is the ongoing ordinance of communion. This is a time where it's a symbolic act. We come around the proverbial communion table, we're actually gonna serve it to you where you're seated, to take the bread and to take the cup. The bread, Jesus says, represents my body and the cup represents my blood my body broken for you on the cross my blood shed for you on the cross it's a way of drawing our attention to the sacrifice that he made when he died on the cross but the bible says more than that it says you're not just drawing attention to his death you are actually when you take communion you are proclaiming his death until he returns in other words you're making the good confession you are saying by taking communion jesus christ is my savior and my king so if you're with us this morning and you've not made that clear a commitment to Jesus Christ in your life, we want you to know we are thrilled that you are here. You're absolutely in the right place. And we want to encourage you to just let the communion elements pass by and not participate in taking them, which is fine. Nobody's looking around. Nobody cares about that anyway. But by doing this, we are announcing that we're Christians. If you're interested in finding out more about what it means to become a Christian, let me urge you to not leave that question unanswered. Maybe talk to another Christian you came to church with. Or if you'd like to talk to one of our pastors or elders here at the church, you can fill out one of those connection cards and say, I'd just like to talk to a pastor or elder. We'll call you, we'll set up time to meet with you, whatever you like, because we want to introduce you to life. For those of us that are going to be receiving communion, the ushers are going to come forward in a minute. They're going to pass out the bread. We'll hold on to that until every one of us has received. During that time, we're just going to have some soft music playing, as is our custom. Um, just a time to be quiet and reflect and think. And here's what I want to encourage you to think about during this brief period where there's just quiet music playing. Think about what things you're most inclined, Christian, to treasure over God. Is it prestige? Is it security? Is it a happy family around the table? Is it money? Whatever it is. Is it sex? Is it alcohol? Is it whatever? What do you tend to crave more than Jesus? 
And just do some business with God in your heart silently. Confess that to him. Ask him to help you see him as more valuable than whatever that thing is. And then we'll come to the table together. Pastor Draith will lead us through. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the goodness of your love for us. We thank you for this opportunity to receive communion. And we come before you as a people to proclaim your death until you come. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers will come forward now and distribute the bread. Take some time to reflect and hold on until everyone has received, and then we'll take it together in just a moment.